You know, I'm very excited about our church. We talk about the kids, and that's to me very exciting. Another area that's exciting for me is our home groups. So we currently have 10 home groups, and so if you're not in one, you want to join one. And so you can also look in that same sheet, and, and you can mark home groups, or, or come talk to me, and I'll help you find one. Um, what I've been doing the last few weeks is kind of visiting all of them. And so one to two home groups per week, I'll just go and kind of sit and just listen, just kind of be a part of it. And it's been for me very encouraging to visit our home groups. And I actually visited one this week. I went to our young mother's Tuesday morning home group. So that was kind of an experience, being the only guy in the room. But it, it was delightful. And these young moms, or, or mums, you say here, that have an absolute passion to teach their little ones about God's Word and, and raise them to know Christ. And so it was good being there. And from what I can tell, and my kids are a little older, six and nine, but they're not growing up yet, I remember quite well that one of the biggest challenges of having young children, and a lot of you have young children, one of the biggest challenges is, quite honestly, that it's so daily. It's daily. You don't get a day off. You don't even get a night off. If you have a little one, you can't even sleep at night. And so it's constant. You're always on. And it's a very daily thing. And so that can become exhausting. So you need times of reprieve. And husbands, let your wives go get their nails done on occasion. Just let them get out of the house for a few hours. That's important for them to have that reprieve because it really can be this constant taxing thing. But see, it's not just for moms of young children. It's really all of life. All of life with all of its demands can really be just very daily. It's just the grind of every day can sometimes feel like, man, this is just too much. But the reality is it's not too much because God's grace truly is enough. And we are called to daily follow Christ. And we are called to not just on a Friday morning, but every day to be pursuing Him, to be connected with Him. And so this reality of living out the mission of glorifying God by making and developing disciples is lived out in the crucible of everyday life. And that is good because it reminds us, like we just sung, that we need you every hour. I need you. We need Jesus daily, because life at times can be challenging. And so this morning, as we continue our Titus series, it's called Reveal. It's called Reveal because in the very first paragraph, the opening verse of the book of Titus, Paul writes to his, his young pastor associate, Titus, the apostle Paul who had planted churches in Crete, and now he's leaving Titus, the young pastor, to lead the churches on the island of Crete, he tells them that God has manifested, that God has revealed the gospel and has been entrusted to the church. And so the church has had the gospel revealed to us and we're now entrusted to take it and to reveal it to those who do not know God yet. And that is why we are here. It is not a purpose of the church. It is the purpose. It is the mission and so what we see in Titus is the theme is revealing the gospel. And so we've been talking about all the different ways in this book 
going verse by verse on how we are called as God's people to reveal His glory as we reveal the gospel. And so today, we're continuing talking about revealing the gospel in our daily life. So that's the goal, is revealing the gospel in our daily lives. Let's read Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So this text is revealing that his people are called to live holy lives set apart for God's purposes. And so we who have Christ are called to live differently. Our lives ought to look different from those who have not known God, who have not believed the gospel, who have not tasted his goodness. So our lives ought to be different. So the main idea out of this text for our sermon this morning, main idea, if you're taking notes, all right, it's that God displays His glory through the lives of His transformed believers, all right? And so God displays His glory through the lives of His transformed believers. And so God shows His wisdom and beauty and glory. He displays that glory through the lives of of those that are following Christ. That is the main idea of this text. And so God is wise, and He is beautiful, and He is perfect. He's majestic. Our God is so glorious. And His ultimate goal, everything that God does, moves towards the end of showing that glory to His created order. And He does it in creation. But look at how amazing creation is. But He does it in redemption. In redeeming the lives of his people, he displays his glory. People who are different, who live holy lives that are set apart for him. And when we do that, when as believers we live transformed lives, God's glory is displayed. So do you want your life to display God's goodness? Do you want your life to reveal his glory. Do you want your life to be different? Do you want to be changed or to experience this transformation that we're talking about this morning? There are three elements from this text revealed about the nature of transformation. First, we're going to see the means for transformation. Secondly, we're going to look at the marks of transformation. And then thirdly, the motivation for transformation. So we're going to learn the means, the marks of, and the motivation for living a life that is set apart, transformed by the glory of God, and for His glory. So let's see the first one on the means for transformation. Taking notes, the means for transformation is the cross of Christ. And so the means for transformation is the cross of Christ. Verse 11 reveals that. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So he has brought salvation. 
The first phrase, the grace of God has appeared. And so in this text, the, the author here, Paul, is personifying God's grace. He's saying grace is a person that has appeared, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And so here we have Jesus is being personified. He came to save us. God's grace is Christ. And then he says that he, Jesus, who is God's grace, is bringing salvation for all people. And so God has a missionary heart. His heart at its heart, at its essence, is missionary. And so we, when we have his holy nature, when we have his Holy Spirit, we should also have a missionary heart. And so as a believer, because God is missionary, we must be missionary. We tend to think missionaries are people that go into other countries and learn a different language, and they're the missionaries. No, that's not true. Yes, they are missionaries, but you're a missionary too. Every single believer in Christ is by definition a missionary. We carry the gospel, and we have a mission to accomplish because our God is missionary. He has come to save, it says, all people. Now, when it says to save all people, it doesn't say he's come to save every single person. There's a distinction with saying all people and every single person, sadly. I really do mean this. Sadly, remorse in my heart. I am forced to admit that not every single human being will repent and believe in the gospel. There are those that hear the gospel and say, no, I don't need that. No, I'm fine without it. So there are people that will not believe. And so what does the scriptures mean when it says for all people? He's talking about people groups, talking about people as in ethnicities. And so when we get to heaven, there will be a representation of every single people, every single people group, every single ethnicity will be represented in heaven. There will be not every single person that has ever lived, but there will be People from all people, from all ethnicities, all people groups will be huddled around the throne. Every tribe and nation and tongue will have people from that people group that will be worshiping the Lamb who was slain. And we see that vividly in our faith family. We see this glimpse of heaven itself when we gather on Friday morning. God is about saving people from every single people group. And it's possible because of God's grace. God's grace has made this possible and is personified as Jesus who has appeared. It's possible because Jesus died on the cross. There's only one way to be saved, and that's expounded on in verse 14. It says, this is Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. This says, our Savior gave himself for us, verse 14. So every single human being is under the holy judgments of God. We don't deserve heaven, and we can never earn heaven. It's not possible. See, the gospel that we believe in the scriptures, the gospel says, that we are the ones that have broken God's laws, and Jesus kept all of God's laws. The gospel says that we have offended God with our sin, but Jesus pleased God. So we're the ones that sinned. Jesus never sinned. 
We're the ones that deserve judgment, but it was He, Christ, who was judged on our behalf on the cross. We're the ones that are full of shame, and yet it was Christ who endured our shame on the cross. We're the ones that deserve God's condemnation, and it was Christ who was condemned in our place. We deserve to be struck in because of our sin, and Christ was struck in our place. He gave himself for us. See, God can't ignore your sin. He can't. He said, well, he can do whatever he wants. Well, he can. He could, but then he would be inconsistent. He'd violate his own holy nature. So in order for God to be a consistent God who maintains and upholds his holiness, he will not ignore our sin. And so there must be justice that must be enacted against our sin that has broken his laws and violated him personally. So God sent his son to die as a substitute in your place and in mine. God loves you, and he loves you so much, and he proved it with sending Jesus to die in your place. And honestly, sometimes look in the mirror, and I just ask the question, why? Why? Why would God love me? And all I can say is that God loves me because he loves me. God loves you because he loves you. You are the object of his affection because he loves you. You think, well, no, that doesn't make sense. Yes, it does. In God's economy, it does make sense because God has chosen to make you the object of his affection. He made you in his image. He has lavished his love upon you and he loves you with the love of a father that is unconditional, and that was proved on the cross. I love the first half of this verse. It says, who gave himself to redeem us. The word redeem means to be set free. When a slave is, is under, you know, he's under the yoke of slavery, and then he is let free, someone pays the redemption price. Someone pays the price so that he can be set free. Well, that is what Christ did on the cross. He paid the redemption price so that we could be set free to liberate us from our slavery to ourselves and our slavery to our sin, our slavery to Satan. We we were in bondage. And what Christ did is he paid the price, the redemption price, so that we could be set free from our slavery. And so if you have repented and believed in Christ, if you really have done that with all of your heart, then you have been set free from the condemnation of the law because Christ was condemned in your place. He kept the law when we could not. You were set free from your slavery to sin because Christ conquered sin and death and Satan on the cross. And he resurrected victoriously, proving that he is able, that he is God, and he alone as fully human and fully God could be the substitute to then conquer our problem, our sin, and to liberate us from, it says, from all lawlessness. We're lawless. We don't like to admit that, but we are. And he redeemed us. He liberated us from our lawlessness, from our sin. The cross of Christ is the only means, the only way, the only method for our transformation. But let's talk for a second on 
in daily life, what, is, what does this look like? Well, guess where it all begins? It begins in your heart. That's where it starts. What you believe in your heart, the, what your convictions are deep in your soul will affect what you think about, will affect how you act and how you live. And so we must truly believe that we are sinners. I like when, when Dave Francis came up and, and had our prayer of adoration and he read out of Psalm 32. We're reading that we are forgiven by God because we need forgiveness because we have sinned. I like what he said, we're all sinners, can't hide about that. He said, as a matter of fact, well, he's right. We are absolutely sinners. And left to ourselves with our own sinful nature, we don't desire God. We desire everything else that this world has to offer us under the sun, and we want to fill ourselves with things that are created rather than be filled with the Creator. That's what we do. We make idols for ourselves. Sin is not just the individual actions that we take. Sin is in our nature. It's who we are. It's what we do. Now, I was listening just this week to someone talk about this. It's just funny to me. Well, first of all, this person was wrong, so I'll tell you that up front, all right? But this individual was talking about sin, and he was arguing against humans having a sinful nature. And he said, no, it's not like that, Christians. Here's the way it works. Humans have a heart, and your heart's like your GPS, and it's programmed where you know the right way to go. And so you're driving down the road, and your GPS telling you where to go. Your heart's leading you the right way. But then what happens is you think, man, I want some Tim Hortons. I want some coffee. So you get off the road, and GPS is screaming, get on the road, get on the road. But you're like, no, 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 GPS, no, no, no heart. I want some Tim Hortons. So you, you get off the road, you go get your coffee, and then you get back on. No problem. You, you get off the road. Yes, you get off track, but you get right back on. Humans don't have a sin problem. Our hearts aren't evil. We just get sidetracked. It's really not a big deal. You Christians make a big deal about things like Christ having to die and having a problem in your heart. He's like, no, no, no. It's simple. Just get back on track. I don't think so. I know my heart, and I'm sure you know yours. I need a new GPS. It has the right maps programmed in it. Because the GPS that I was born with is messed up. The maps are all wrong. And if I get off at Tim Hortons, I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to go to the mall. I'm going to go to the salon. I'm going to keep going. I'm never going to get back on. And if you're honest, you're the same way. Our GPS, our heart, is not programmed correctly. The Bible says that we need a new heart. We need to lead our heart, not follow it. But even that's only possible when you believe with all of your heart that you are a sinner and that Christ died for you. He'll give you that new GPS. He'll give you a new nature where you will not want to. When we recognize our guilt, this is the key, when we recognize our guilt, And then secondly, we recognize God's glory. That leads to transformation. We can't minimize our sin. We need to recognize our guilt, recognize God's glory, and that leads to transformation. Possible only because Christ died in our place. And so the means for transformation is the cross of Christ. 
Secondly, the marks of transformation is the character of Christ. So the character of Christ is the marks of transformation. By marks, I mean the characteristics. What are the marks? What does it look like to have transformation? So when someone has been overwhelmed by God's grace that has appeared, God's grace in the person of Jesus, what does that look like? What are the characteristics? Well, the marks of it, 11 and 12, those verses tell us. It says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It says that it's training us, that God's grace, the Spirit of Jesus himself, is training us to do what? Well, like he says, to be self-controlled, not be ungodly, and be upright, and all of these characteristics. And so what is it? It's the character of Christ. It's being like Jesus, having a more holy disposition. Not a holy perfection, but definitely a holy direction in our lives. And verse 14, he says that he wants to purify for himself a people. That's what God wants. He wants your heart to be pure. That's what he's after. And what is the result? Again, in verse 14, being zealous for good works. See, religion can't do that. Religion doesn't go deep enough. But the gospel does. It gives us a completely new nature, a radical transformation where now our want to is changed. Now we want to be zealous for good works. Now we desire God. Now our world just is different because you have a new heart. Well, how does this happen? Faith and repentance. You must place your complete trust and you must repent. Recognize that you're a sinner. Say, I turn to you alone. I trust you, Jesus. And he will change your desires. He'll change. He'll transform you. But so here's the problem. Some of you in the room have already done that. Maybe many years ago, you have received Christ. You are a believer. You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. And yet, we still struggle. What's up with that? Ever wonder that? You're like, I don't understand. Why do I still have these struggles? I have Christ. I have His Spirit inside of me. Why do I continue to still have struggles? Well, it's really not that complicated because we still live in a fallen world and we're not in heaven yet. We've not been glorified yet. God's work hasn't been completed just yet. And so we live in the now but not yet. Now we have the Holy Spirit. Now we have Christ. We have not yet been glorified. That hasn't happened yet. It will. But when we live in the here and the now and the now but not yet, We have to pursue Christ and his righteousness. Well, how does that work? How does that happen? How do I really experience transformation as a believer on this side of heaven? Faith and repentance. The same thing that you did when you came to Christ. You see, we tend to think that you repent and believe, and then you're done. No, yes, you are saved at that point, but we must continue with daily, moment by moment, faith and repentance. We repent of our ongoing sin and our ongoing struggles. So when I say continued faith, I'm talking about a continued daily belief. Again, continued and daily. That Jesus is more valuable. That Jesus is more worthy. That Jesus will satisfy you more fully 
than other things that would compete for your affections. That fleeting pleasures don't compare to the joy of the presence of Christ. Continued, daily, moment by moment, reaffirming your belief, your faith. You are saved by faith when you initially believe, but then we must daily be connected to Christ as we continue to grow. And repentance, what I'm talking about there, is turning away from your sin, where we remember that we indeed are sinful, and you change your mind, and you actually make a choice to follow Christ every day. And repentance keeps us facing our ongoing struggle with sin. We have to continue facing our sin and not minimizing it and not denying that it's there, not excusing it away. Yes, if you've repented, you are saved. But are you living it out? That's the question. You know what sin wants? Sin wants you alone. Sin wants you in a dark place, all by yourself, isolated from your wife or your husband or your other faith family. Sin wants you feeling guilt. Sin wants you to feel shame. Sin wants you completely isolated where you think that there is no way out. And we try to keep it a secret because we think that we can manage it. We think that we can control it and that we can overcome by ourselves, and that is exactly where sin wants us, to keep our sin a secret. And the longer that we stay isolated, and the more that we have these hidden attitudes and and these hidden frustrations, or whatever it might be in your life that you want to cover up or minimize, but you know in the pit of your heart that it's a problem, but you keep minimizing and thinking, well, it'll go away. Well, it will not go away until it comes to light, until you confess it, until you repent. You will continue to struggle until it comes to light. Now, when it comes to light, it's going to be ugly. When it's in the darkness, you can't see it very clearly. But when you you bring that sin, the ugliness to light, it's horrifying and it's miserable, but it's the only way to heal. And so if you're struggling with, I don't know whether it's anger or lust or depression or anxiety or bitterness or worry or fear, whatever grips your heart, the solution is faith and repentance. With faith, you say, I give this to you, God. You be honest with yourself. You be honest with the person maybe that you've offended with that sin. Be honest with God. You be honest. And then you'll have forgiveness. Then you will feel what Acts 3, 19 and 20, Apostle Peter preaching says, Repent therefore and turn again that your sin may be blotted out. And times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent so that you will experience refreshing that comes from the presence of Jesus himself. When we don't repent, we don't experience that refreshing. We don't experience God's presence. And so repentance is a good thing. Confessing it is a good thing. It leads to refreshing and to a renewed intimacy with Jesus. 
can you remember the last time, or at least remember a time, when you really needed forgiveness? That time when you were in a dark place. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the light that breaks that darkness and allows you to come into the light and have that refreshing. When was the last time that you had weights of guilt or shame upon you and then you heard those amazing words, I forgive you? Can you remember when you were in need of forgiveness and you confessed it and you heard the words, I forgive you? Do you remember feeling that weight of guilt and shame being lifted off of you? Do you remember that? I do. And I can tell you that repentance indeed does bring refreshing. You see, we we talk about our relationship with God as being personal, and we should because it is. You have to personally believe in Christ, but personal does not mean that it's private. You do not have a private relationship with Jesus. You don't have that. God has saved you in a community. You don't have the option as a follower of Christ to be isolated. You don't have that. The Bible doesn't give you that option. Yes, it's personal, absolutely, but it's not private. You need people in your life to encourage you, to ask the hard questions, to come to and say, hey, what's going on with you? I don't know what's up with you, but you, you, you ain't right. And for you to then say, yeah, you're right. I'm struggling. I have anger. Man, I've been really just struggling with fear or whatever it might be, and being honest with that person and honest before God, and that is how we grow and experience transformation. Verse 15 says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. For us to have Christ-like character, we must submit to authority. This is important for us. We must submit to God's word. You know, I, t- I took my little girl, Abigail, who was six on a date, on just yesterday, actually. So we're at Mug and Bean for breakfast, and then we, we saw this, this mom, I don't know, she was a young mom, a little boy, three, four years old, came in, sat at a table not far from us, and I saw the mom, she looked tired. I mean, it was like 8 o'clock in the morning, but she was already tired. <laughs> Amen, moms? You know, is that him and you're already tired? She looked, she looked tired, and she was carrying a bunch of stuff, a diaper bag and all these different things, and she's putting all her stuff down, and she just kind of sits down in the chair, Mug and Bean, and her little boy is in a different table. And, and we heard twice she say, come over here, come, come sit with mommy. And this little boy, clearly, he said, no, I'm sitting over here, twice. And I just thought, oh, he's going to get it. No, you know what she does? She picked up all of her stuff, and she walked over and sat next to her little three-year-old. And I didn't say, I just kept eating my... Uh, what was it, my morning mug with nuts and yogurt. And, uh, and Abigail looks at me and says, Daddy, did you see that? I said, yes, I did. And I said, who has the authority there, Abby? And she thought, and she said, the little boy. I said, you're right. That mother was very obedient to the authority. And she said, Daddy, that's not right. I was like, no, it's not. I said, Abby, who's your authority? God. Yes. 
and who put authority over you, even from God. She's like, well, you and mommy, exactly. And so God is the authority. She knows this. But God has given moms and dads as an authority over their children to represent God to the children. And so moms and dads, you represent God to your children. And so that mother just taught that little boy that he's the authority and there's no God in heaven. There is no authority. He is the authority. And she taught him that. And when that little boy grows up and he hears the gospel and he says, God is the authority and you must submit to him, he's going to say, Psh, no way, I'm the authority. And so if you want your children to respond to the gospel and to love Jesus, represent God well to your children. Make sure, verse 15, that you exhort and rebuke with all authority and don't let your kids disregard you. Applying it to parenting here for a second. It applies in the church. It applies in every context where there's authority, but it applies as parents. This matters. If you want transformation for you, you have to submit to God's authority and do life His way. And so the cross of Christ transforms us. That is the means, all right? And the marks of being transformed is the character of Christ itself. Lastly, number three, the motivation for transformation. What is the motivation? The glory of Christ. And so the cross of Christ is the means. The character of Christ is the mark. And the glory of Christ is the motivation. Verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is our glorious great God and Savior. We pursue transformation. We pursue Christ's character. We submit to His authority because we want to. Because we desire to. Because we want His glory revealed through our lives. Because there's nothing else that is more beautiful or glorious or worthy. And so He died on the cross in your place. But He's not dead. He is alive and well. And He's going to come back in full splendor one day. As He says here, the blessed hope of Christ returning for us. And so this assurance of this amazing, beautiful, glorious future should motivate us to keep going, to keep pressing on, to keep killing our sin every single day. It's about the beauty and glory of Christ that should motivate us. If you're motivated by anything else, I'm telling you, it's not going to be lasting. If anything else motivates you, it's going to fail you. It's going to burn out. You're going to get tired of it. it. It doesn't go deep enough. Only the motivation for the glory of God revealed through your life is the only motivation that will give you true, lasting change. You have to remember who you are. Don't believe the lies. Satan will lie to you and say that you're no good and that you're not worth it and that you can't do this. And that's preacher talk up there. This, is, this doesn't work for me in everyday life. But those are lies from hell. Don't forget who you are. If you believe in Christ, you are regenerated. You are born again. You have the Spirit of God living inside of you. The same Spirit that resurrected Christ is the same Spirit that lives inside of you. You are justified. Your sins are not held against you. You are adopted. You belong to the Father. You are forgiven. 
You stand on the righteousness of Christ, not your own righteousness. You are redeemed. You are set free from the slavery of sin. You are adopted and you are precious to God. That's who you are. Yes, you're flawed. But don't forget the realities that are yours now in Christ with the future hope of the blessed hope that Christ will come back and the struggles of this life are going to be a distant memory when we're resurrected. It just won't matter anymore. And so we pursue him, delighting in him every day because he is worthy. We must see ourselves the way God sees us. When he sees our sin, he doesn't minimize it. His son died because of our sin. So we can't minimize our sin either. See your sin how God sees it. But not only that, see your life the way God sees it. As precious and as an opportunity for you to reflect his glory. You see yourself the way God sees you. And you'll change. Do you really want to change? The path to a life of obedience is not a checklist not a religion, it's not a formula to follow. It's a person. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus himself. You must encounter Jesus. He is the motivation. What more do we need? If we will live a gospel-centered, Christ-centered, truly Christ-centered life. That's the goal here. Gospel-centered, cross-centered, Christ-centered. If we'll live that way, we will experience transformation deep inside as all of us desire. And may we as a faith family reveal the gospel in our daily lives. Please pray with me. Father, this morning we come before you boldly because your son made a way. Because your son paid the price. And he's the only means for our transformation. Father, I thank you for the cross. I thank you, Father, for our forgiveness. I thank you that you lift our shame from us, our guilt. And you give us hope, a blessed hope. Father, I pray for anyone in this room that even now as we speak is grappling with these truths. I pray that they will repent and believe in you. They'll repent of their sins and turn to you alone. That they will experience this transformation. I pray that we would all live daily, moment by moment, repenting and reaffirming our faith in you so that you can continue to make us who you want us to be. Thank you for your word and for our time this morning. We pray this for the sake of your son, in his name and for his glory. Amen.